You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. So Miranda Taylor, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you, Leo. I'm really looking forward to our discussion this morning. So can we just start with a quick overview of NERA and your role there? So NERA is one of the six industry growth centers that were established by the federal government to drive the future productivity and global competitiveness of the Australian economy. Um, be it energy resources, which is the growth center that I represent, or mining, or indeed advanced manufacturing, medical technology, agriculture, cyber, and other industry sectors, which I think is, goes to the point of the growth centers, which is that the Australian economy is going to have to go through some major structural changes if we're going to be a prosperous country into the future. And we need to deepen the complexity of our economy and pull through and commercialize more of the enabling smart technologies rather than just produce product. So if I take NERA, the growth center for the energy resources sector, what we're focused on is trying to look at how technologies can enable that sector to be more productive and more globally competitive and how we can actually grow the jobs and the business opportunities from those technologies, not just produce an energy product. And uh, I'm the CEO of NERA, um, and I'm very proud to be leading a small team, but that a team that is having a, a big impact across uh, the energy resources sector in Australia. Yeah, and we'll definitely get to the NERA's network and its impact soon. But can I also talk a little bit about your personal history? You weren't always destined for the Australian energy industry. You grew up in the UK and studied at the London School of Economics. What are your memories of your early career ambitions? Well, indeed, in, indeed, I actually didn't grow up in the UK all the time. My, my parents were itinerant uh, people. So I actually lived and went to school in many different countries around the world. Um, but I did eventually end up in boarding school for my sins. Um, and that probably helped form my character a little bit because boarding schools back way back when I was of age were not the uh, friendly, warm places that they are now. Um, I guess that highlights where my early ambitions came from. Um, and my earliest ambition was to work for the United Nations or the Red Cross, live in Geneva and ski regularly and drink nice European Mediterranean wines. You know, that's, that's the humorous side. But what I was really always passionate about were international connections. And I 
really was very, very interested in international history, international politics. And I always wanted to work in uh, a sort of international engagement piece. And that's why eventually I applied to the London School of Economics to do international economics, history and politics. Um, and I didn't quite make it to the United Nations. I did make it out to Israel and worked on a kibbutz in the Golan Heights um, on the border with Syria. Um, and I also did some work on peacekeeping for my university degree. I did a thesis in international peacekeeping. From there, I found myself meeting an Australian and we moved out to live in Kakadu National Park. And I actually ended up working with the communities in Kakadu. But my passion and love for that international economics and engagement never went away. Yeah, well, I did want to talk about that transition to Australia. I understand you were in Kakadu to do with the Ranger uranium mine. It must have been an incredible culture shock to be suddenly in such a remote area. Yes, you, you know, it's a funny thing. People have often said that. Um, so, yes, I went from London, did a little stint in Jerusalem, and then straight out to Kakadu. And I think it was precisely because Kakadu was so vastly different that I actually fell absolutely passionate in love with it. I've often wondered if I'd landed from London into, say, Perth or Adelaide or even Sydney and Melbourne back in those days, whether I would have fallen in love with it as much as I did. But the extreme contrast of being out in one of the most remote areas of Australia, really, I fell in love with it. And the other thing I would say about Kakadu, back in those days, the mining company went looking for the world's best brains because they were doing this thing that today seems almost impossible to conceive, that we would allow a uranium mine to operate in a national park. Um, and as part of that commitment to operating in the national park, the mine searched for some of the, the brightest people. And so in the township that we lived in, we had PhDs from all around the world, from Warsaw, Czechoslovakia, Scotland, America, Sweden. So my next door neighbours were PhDs from Aberdeen University in nuclear physics. And his wife had a PhD in Hebrew literature and had chronicled the uh, Holocaust Library at Oxford University. Um, my next door neighbours on the other side were Polish uh, PhD from Warsaw University. And his wife was a medical expert. So Really, I found myself in this bizarre, bizarre world of the most remote mine site, but with the most beautiful national park, but also surrounded by some of the brightest people in the world um, working and, and living in this space. So it was really an incredible experience. So after falling in love with the Kakadu National Park and the surprisingly cultured workforce at the Ranger Uranium Mine, Miranda was hooked on a career in the Australian resources sector. Over the next two decades, she worked at sites across the Northern Territory and Western Australia, taking on increasingly senior roles in human resources, community engagement and environmental sustainability. Ultimately, this experience led Miranda to become the Director of Environment, Safety and Operational Performance at Appia the peak body for the Australian petroleum industry. In this role, she was called on not only to advocate for the needs of industry, but also find a balance between them and the often contrary positions of regulators, community groups, and environmentalists. 
I asked Miranda about the challenges of maintaining such a diverse network and how she practiced the art of stakeholder engagement. Yeah, it, it is really, a really a challenge. Um, everybody thinks that they're good at stakeholder engagement. Um, most companies think that they're good at it. Um, and indeed, I think many companies do sometimes get good at it and then they forget what made it successful. Um, I think the art of engagement, it is really the ability to understand other people's agenda and listen to people. And it is an art of negotiation. It is about understanding what, where and how you can compromise. It's about understanding that you don't get your whole agenda and that you're not necessarily always right. Um, I think there is a great tendency for us all to argue from a point where we think we're right and uh, we set out to make other people wrong. I think that's really not helpful to stakeholder engagement. It is difficult when you've got competing agendas and competing needs. You don't want to race to the bottom to get the lowest common denominator. You're trying to find a way to get the most optimum outcome you can. And sometimes you achieve it and sometimes you don't. But I think when you've got a common crisis, it's not easy, but it is easier, I guess, to get a way of coming forward to say, look, we're in this together. Uh, our future is dependent on each other and we need to solve these issues together. And we need to understand the stakeholders and the impact on the stakeholders. So when I when I was at Apia, we had the, uh, the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Um, and again, a great example about how technology and human interface needs to be so carefully understood because you can't you can't look at technology and science without looking at the human interaction with it. I think uh, sometimes crisis does enable some progress. Um, I think the world that we're moving into is opening up the spheres in which we can see that there's more value to be had in working together than working against each other. Um, and there's more value in supporting other sectors and other industries. So the oil and gas industry working more closely with the fishing industry or with the renewable industry and agriculture and defense. I think we're seeing a world where the cross industry and cross stakeholder interests are becoming closer tied up. Um, but it is a constant art of trying to find the areas that people can agree on, finding ways of delivering some value to the people you're trying to work with. If I, if I think in the early days of safety, very often people would act like they were the policemen of safety and they would impose their agenda on somebody working on a production site or something. That's not a way of achieving change. Um, you actually have to understand what are the drivers of the people doing production, and you have to understand how can you add value? How can safety, environment, sustainability add value to that person's agenda and business so that they can become a champion for you, not somebody who's fighting against you? So, so trying to find ways of adding value and, and understanding the pain points of others so that you can actually build a, a strong relationship in a way of it's a mutual win-win. Well, this might be a good time to take us forward to the present day at NERA, because stakeholder engagement is definitely a skill set you're leaning on there as well. I don't think we've mentioned this, but you are not only NERA's current CEO, but you were also its inaugural CEO and one of the very first employees at the organization. It must have been an incredible journey to build this new institution from the ground up. What were the early days of NERA like? Yes. Uh... I think I said to the guy that was um, in charge of the recruitment that it had been a roller coaster. And I think that's true. 
um, because obviously Australia has been through a lot in that time. But when, when we opened the doors back in 2016, we'd established a board and put some basic governance in place, but that was it. There was nothing else in place. So it really was coming in and saying, well, well, what is, what is, where is the energy resources sector going over the next five to 10 years? What are the big challenges they're going to face? And how are we going to position ourselves to be able to adapt to what is inevitably going to be an uncertain future? So we had to create a model of business that allowed us to be adaptive as well. At least the first year is spent on just building up trust and relationship with those stakeholders that we talked about earlier. So who is this entity, Nira? What are you? Can we trust you? Are you independent? Um, building relationship is everything and building that trust that we're a safe partner to do business with. And one of the things I would really underscore as the value of the growth centers is that we are not membership based. So we are totally independent. We aren't driven by one of our members agenda because they're paying us. We are funded through grants from the federal government. So it enables us to be relatively objective and to bring a level of independence. So I think that's a really important point about the growth centres. Over the four years, we've moved and grown really, I think we've really moved well, and we've got such a diverse portfolio of work. And we've also been able to navigate the growing energy transition. And I think that has really escalated in the four years. Um, You know, I won't go into the um, nitty gritty of the energy policy wars that Australia has been on. But I think where we're landing is a very clear view that we are on an energy transition, that fossil fuels will eventually decline. There is no doubt we're on a pathway to a low emissions future. Um, And I think that's broadly accepted. The timeframes by which the traditional energy resources start declining and um, we start being able to support a stable integration of uh, renewable energy and other technologies, I think uh, is still a little bit open. Um, But there's, I think four years ago, that that was only just really being accepted, even though you would argue we probably should have been a lot further as a country. Um, But where we are today is a very firm acceptance that we're on that energy transition pathway. And NERA, because we set up our business model to be adaptive, We've been working with our sector from the get-go to say, well, we all want to be in the future of industry. How can we deploy renewable technologies so that we can minimise the emissions footprint of the industry? And indeed, how will the industry transition to become future energy and energy technologies companies rather than oil and gas companies? Um, that's, that's the journey we've been on. And it's, been a re- it's, it's a really exciting journey, I think. So yeah, NERA obviously has an important role to play in supporting the creation of the technologies that will underpin this energy transition. And I know a core part of your strategy around this is to build clusters and communities of innovation that bring together industry, academics, and entrepreneurs, hopefully creating an environment not just for blue sky research, but for creating innovations that actually get adopted by industry. And there's a number of programs, but I particularly wanted to focus in on the Living Labs program. Could you tell us a bit about how they work? Yes. So uh, Living Labs, if you like, are safe demonstration 
sites where if you if you could imagine that for a lot of big business in particular who've got deep capital investment in infrastructure projects assets that are potentially high risk so innovating is not easy it's not that they are by nature are not innovative or conservative in fact most industries to get where they were had to be innovative um, they had to look at r&d and commercializing r&d but the larger and the the more expensive the assets get, the harder it can be to actually deploy innovation. And the incremental benefit from that innovation can be hard to justify in a, in a traditional world. With the world that we find ourselves in today, in particular, the ability to use simulations, to use um, digital twins, to have uh, demonstration sites, to be able to replicate real life conditions, but in a research environment, and then to be able to demonstrate, prove proof of concept, um, and then commercialize up innovations in an environment that is safe, adds so much value because it can be really difficult to do it on operating sites. So in the, in the energy sector, the ability, for instance, to um, look at how data can be if you've got multiple assets that and, and, and bits of equipment that all need to be able to operate in an integrated way, and they've all got different proprietal um, technologies and data interfaces, the world we're moving into, the, the world of Industry 4.0, is going to require all those bits of equipment and the assets that they operate in all to be able to read off each other so that you can optimize the performance of, of that activity. Um, and living labs such as the Erdi Test Lab, which is a federal government um, support, supported six uh, industry 4.0 labs around the research environments, um, including one with the University of Western Australia here in, in Perth, in WA. And the Erdi Test Lab is a, what we call an interoperability test lab, and it enables um, small businesses and big businesses to come and work in a safe environment to look at um, the data and the interface of the technology and the bits of equipment with, um, with a say, a, a BHP operating mine site or uh, an energy, uh, a bit of an energy infrastructure. Um, also, things like uh, renewable offshore energy, uh, the, the, the ability to test and deploy things like tidal and wave. Um, there's a long, there's a lead time from when you go from concept, concept proof of concept uh, full commercialization and you need to do a lot of demonstration so things like living laboratories in the sea environment might mean that you could demonstrate and prove prove up the application of say wind and tidal and wave technologies so they're going to be they are absolutely vital and the way that I see it is that across all the industry sectors because all the growth centers are supporting the equivalent of these living labs you end up with an ecosystem of um, labs and spaces in which you can actually deploy innovation in a safe way and speed up that commercialization journey. And I think it in those living labs, you start to get that strong relationship between the research community and the industry community. And you get industry and researchers working on genuine challenges together rather than uh, in separate camps. So you get that fluid movement of, say, PhD students and industry people moving between and working 
So that ability of the industry to work with the university in an environment on living labs becomes critical. And I think it's really where Australia needs to be in the future. Yeah, they, they definitely seem like an interesting model for encouraging engagement between universities and industry. Um, my next question might be a bit of a tangent, but it's often been said that Australia is too reliant on primary production, covering you know, mining, agriculture, and the petroleum industry too. Essentially, the argument is we really should be focused on downstream manufacturing processes that value add on these raw resources. What's your viewpoint on the need to diversify the Australian economy and whether our innovation, time and effort should be focused, I guess, away from these primary production sources and more in the advanced manufacturing space? I don't think there's any doubt that Australia needs to diversify its economy and its exports. I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and I, may, I, I mainly mean they're perhaps mining. We are richly endowed with some of the rare and critical materials that are so fundamental to the digital technologies of the future. We need to still produce those commodities, but we want, and, and I don't know about downstream, but yes, absolutely. We want to look at the technologies and the innovation that comes out of that. So if you think of Australia and the environments that we've mined in, in particular, really harsh, remote environments. If you think of even the oil and gas industry, working in some of the most remote areas offshore in deep subsea waters, that's like going to space. We, we've never not been an innovative country when it comes to being able to work smartly in very, very difficult environments. It's true, though, that the value of export income to Australia has been very heavily reliant on commodities, and, and commodities are subject to the vulnerabilities of commodity prices. Um, and also, Australia needs to diversify our supply chains, and I think COVID-19 has highlighted that, so the supply chains that support that industry. So building on what we already have, which is smart. We know how to work in remote operations. We work in deep mines. We work in subsea environments. We have technologies that we can then focus on manufacturing here in Australia. So what we would really like to see is instead of buying our smarts and the actual manufacturing capability from overseas, what we'd really like to see is that not just the invention done here, but the commercialization of the technology solutions done here too it actually becomes a really strong story. We've got the commodities that you need for the digital technologies, but we're also now manufacturing some of those technologies here in Australia, while not becoming protectionist. You know, we're, we're always going to be a trading nation, but just building a more resilient and more diverse economy. I think it's, that's really Australia's future. Well, a penultimate question that definitely does tie into that idea our audience includes researchers and entrepreneurs who might have ideas for new Australian technologies. What would be your advice to them for tapping into these networks of innovation and the best pathway forward for commercialising an idea in Australia? Yes, well, look, I would say come talk to NERA, talk to Metz Ignited, talk to the other growth centres. But I think, you know, fundamentally, coming back to what I said about stakeholders, if you're a technology and you're a researcher and entrepreneur, you need to understand the solution that you're offering, you need to understand what the industry and what your customers actually need. Too often, we come up with what we think are great ideas, and they probably are great ideas, but they may not be able to be deployed by the customer. So know, know your industry, know your customers, work together, 
that's why I come back to the areas in which universities and industry can work together. But we also need people in the university system to be incentivized to engage with industry, to engage in commercial solutions, not just to teach and to publish research papers, which is how they're incentivized at the moment. Um, how can we better incentivize researchers and entrepreneurs in universities to actually partner with industry and to look at the commercialization journey? So, yeah, uh, come and talk to the growth centers. But I think there's also some work that needs to be done in Australia about how we incentivize the research community. Uh, well, Miranda, we definitely agree with that sentiment here on the Lab Notes podcast. It's been fascinating to chat to you about your career and the goings-on at the Neuro Growth Center. Before we let you go, the final question we ask our guests is whether you have any book recommendations for the audience. Ah, well, um, a few people who know me will already know that I'm a great science fiction reader. I've actually made this recommendation to a number of other people. So there's a Chinese science fiction writer that has written a series called The Three-Bodied Problem. And there are three books in the series. So look for The Three-Bodied Problem. It is an absolutely phenomenal leap into the imagination of technology and the future of space. And I think space is quite a topical issue in Australia at the moment, as we've got this strong partnership emerging between the space sector and the mining and, all, and, and energy sector because we of our expertise in working in remote operations. Um, and then finally, I'm also a huge fan of traditional classical literature. So I think my one and all time great would have to be War and Peace which sort of goes to the heart of why I went to the London School of Economics to try and work through that story of war and peace, the, the grand trajectory of history and the Napoleonic Wars that war and peace sets out. And Tolstoy's great writing is one of the greatest books. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Miranda. Those are great recommendations and it's been a great interview. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Leo. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Pebble Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.